The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So my topic tonight is patience. And I want to begin with a quote. Patience is a tree whose roots are bitter, but whose fruit is sweet. And in Pali, the term that is usually translated as patience or forbearance is kanti in the Pali language. And I think this is a virtue that many of us want to cultivate, want to have, but actually don't think it's going to be a lot of fun. How many people here wish at times in their life recently, like say within the last month, that you've actually wished you had more patience? Yeah, it's really a needed virtue in our world, isn't it? And there are so many forces working against us with the fast pace that we live with and all of the demands that we um, experience and the pressures and the quickness of everything. Um, I have a friend who um, went on a vacation, and she had Internet access, but it was dial-up. Um, she said she couldn't do email. Wait, she just, just, just couldn't do email. It was inconceivable. And I thought that that was quite interesting because, you know, it wasn't really very long ago that we all had dial-up. And it wasn't really very long before that that none of us had email. <laughs> there was a time when it was we would actually take out a pen and a piece of paper and write on it if we wanted to communicate something or pick up the telephone. Kanti is something that we must develop quite intentionally, but it shouldn't be confused with passivity, with reticence, or with procrastination. Because procrastination and passivity include an element of resistance or avoidance, a lack of energy. Whereas Kanti, this quality of patience, is a calm abiding. It's an enduring quality where the mind is engaged in the experience. We're not passive. Kanti is actually a dynamic quality. Though it's tranquil, it has quite a bit of energy in it. It's not forceful, but it is um, present, dynamic, full. Um, does anybody remember those um, advertisements on of the Hunt's ketchup? from years ago, where there'd be the little kid with the bottle and he'd be trying to get it out and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, but it wouldn't come out. And if he, if he splashed it, if he hit the bottom of the, of the, of the ketchup bottle, it would go splashing over at his brother or his sister or on the wall or something. And sometimes we just have to be patient and let the kind of ketchup come out slowly. The ability to be present with our experience, free of demand, free of that forceful quality, and just let our experience unfold in its own rhythm and its own time is an essential part of our practice because we can't make things happen in our practice. When we are patient to let our practice unfold, we'll find that a kind of lightness and buoyancy arises in the mind, a brilliance of heart that is associated with patience and presence. We need patience for many aspects of our lives. Research, discovery, learning all require that dynamic engagement of patience. 
Have you ever tried to learn some new subject? Well, I'm studying Polly now. And I just have my little Polly book. You know, it's a grammar book. And I'm learning grammar things. And it's requiring quite a bit of patience for me because I don't have a lot of facility with um, languages. So it might, in an hour, I might be able to translate three or four, maybe five sentences in an hour. And they're simple sentences. They're like, um, the farmer takes a plow to the field. Um, and sows the seed, or um, you know, they're, they're like that. They're not. They're not like high, highfalutin dharma things. These are just very basic sentences, and it's the excruciating process. And it, it's actually something that I'm taking as not only an interest to develop some more poly skills, but as a practice, specifically a practice of patience. I trust that if I just do my sentences a little bit each day, a little bit each week, eventually I'll get to the end of the book. Almost anything that we do requires the patience to practice. I've had people come to meditation classes, but they want it instantly. Well, you know, meditation is not an instant process. We don't mix it with water, stir it up, and zap it in the microwave, and it's done. We actually cultivate it little by little. And some people will assess their progress so um, quickly in the meditation that they haven't let themselves cook in a way. And we can't know at the end of a five-week introductory course or even at the end of a few months of practice what the benefits and the fruits are. It's just a, it's just a gradual process. Learning anything is going to require patience. And sometimes it requires as much patience for the teacher as it does for the student. I think of driver's ed teachers. Maybe it requires courage, too. (laughs) But anything that we want to undertake is something that we need to dedicate ourselves to and explore and stay steady with, even when we don't see immediate fruits. In meditation, we're observing our own existence, our own processes, perceptions. We're disentangling the knots of conditioning, and we need to have that Willingness to just meet ourselves being ourselves, whether we like what we find or not. We have to observe the familiar patterns and the hindrances, whether it's judgment and fear or anxiety, and we have to accept, oh, this arose, and be patient with ourselves as we're unraveling those painful habits. We have to endure the unpleasantness of them and then patiently observe them as they change, as they pass. As meditators, we watch the mind. It looks from the outside like we're sitting and doing nothing. But actually, it requires a tremendous engagement of energy and a patience to sit and watch the breath and observe the mind. Scientists will observe other features of experience. Biologists might observe nature. Entomologists might watch bugs. I was interested to learn a little bit about bees and discovered that they have a certain way of communicating. Some 
things called a round dance and other things a wiggle dance. And before a hive swarms, they have these kind of dancing discussions that the entomologists have been observing and are are um, tracking as a kind of communication among the the um, among the the um, a geometric they call it a geometric symbolic form of communication among the bees. Now I think it's quite amazing that the little bees can talk to each other so you know and communicate and make their communal decisions. But what really struck me was that the entomologists had the patience to watch the bees <laughs> and decipher what they might be saying to try to see the patterns over and over and over again. And sometimes we have to watch our minds over and over and over again to get at the roots of our patterns. We've all seen bees, but how many of us have looked at them and watched them closely enough and long enough to see how they communicate? Are you willing to sit with your own mind and to watch, and to wait, to see what unfolds. I think we can practice in lots of moments of wait for waiting, just to develop this skill of patience. What do you think of when you see, when you're driving down the street and the light turns yellow? What does that communicate to you? Is it a challenge? Or does it actually signal stop? Notice the next time you come to a red light, whether you're really responding to it as a signal to stop or you're taking it as a challenge to hurry up and to speed through. I consider the yellow lights as well as the red lights invitations to wait. And we don't have to fill that time with lots of other activities. It's amazing what people will do at a stop sign or a stop light. Some years ago, I was teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction, and I had one student who said that she was working her way through the textbook on stress reduction at stoplights. <laughs> now, some stoplights you can be at for a long time, but I thought she was missing the point. <laughs> Many things that have value require time. Time to unfold, time to be present, time to let them come to maturity, to go through cycles, rhythms, let things come through their own pace. I was talking with a woman on an airplane a while back, and she was saying that she had just had, um, the week before, had had a birthday with her six-year-old son. The son. The son had just turned six. And when he went to bed that night, he said, Mommy... How many days until my next birthday? We have to begin to plan. Sometimes as soon as something good happens, we immediately want to plan the next one. And we don't really let the experience of the first event just resonate and then wait for another opportunity or for the situation to come together again. If we don't let ourselves wait, if we don't let ourselves have patience and kanti, then we might just perpetuate grasping one experience after another. Many things take time to mature or to occur. Some things 
take time like growth. We can't make ourselves grow faster. We can't, um, um, healing often takes time. Arts and crafts take time. I don't know if anybody um, here does an arts and crafts that really takes time. If you see really good craftsmanship, it's not fast, instant stuff. Really beautiful wood inlays or embroidery or quilting. Part of what we're struck by when we see some of the, the beauty of art and craft is the time that is put in, that diligence, that patience, that care that is put in. I remember when my grandmother made a, I didn't actually see it until after her death, she made a hope quilt that she started when I was born. And it was a beautiful quilt that was just tiny, 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 tiny little stitches cross-hatching throughout the whole quilt. Incredible work. And each one had to take, each one had to be done individually. No sewing machine. Every aspect of this was done with a needle and thread. And it's a, it's a beautiful, um, um, it's just a beautiful thing to, to, to see a work like this. And knowing that she worked her whole life, um, and would do this in the evening. Just sitting when she was resting at night, she still would do some of these stitching a little bit every day until it was finished. I'm um, having to, to practice another kind of patience. I've been having some digestive trouble. So I'm on this wheat-free, dairy-free, corn-free, soy-free. It's practically a food-free diet. <laughs> And so the things that I would normally cook, most of them are just not no longer on the list. And so I've had to get new recipes, and I've had to mix up new kinds of flour and go and mix new kinds of things to replace the old things and experiment. Like, um, well, what can you use instead of cornstarch? And what can you use instead of if you can't have dairy milk and you can't have soy milk and rice milk doesn't really work either? Da, 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 all of these things. And it's a whole experimental process. But it actually can be quite fun if we're not really in a race to produce the perfect whatever. Cake, soup, cookie, um, I'm trying to create something for a potluck. And I'm thinking, well, what can I bring that I can eat and everybody else can eat too? Quite interesting. So um, Kanti, patience, is proactive. We engage with our experience, but we don't force it in any way. We allow the moment to be as it is. Sometimes if we don't have this patience, we weaken ourselves with this pressing for immediate gratification. This can be particularly dangerous if we are successful at getting what we want or acquiring comfort. Sometimes the acquiring of comfort actually just makes us more demanding and more impatient. Fast foods and microwaves can be convenient processes, but they also can make us very impatient. Some people tell me they have no time to meditate. Well, we all have 24 hours in a day. 
It's just a question of how we use it. Everybody gets the same amount of time. Do we sense the rhythm of our days? Do we recognize what we spend our time on? Are we awake for the moments of our life? Do we use simple moments to wake up, to just rest, to be at ease, and to be mindful? Like when we're driving, when we're sitting in a, at a stop sign, when we're waiting for a phone call, when we're on hold. I read a statistic that during the first 30 years of life in the United States, you stand in line for eight and a half weeks. If we just used standing in line time for our practice, we would all get at least an eight and a half week retreat. Wouldn't that be cool? Think of all those moments of mindfulness that we might pass up just being impatient. How calm are you? How much ease do you experience when you have to wait for an appointment? Do you experience worry, dread? Do you occupy the time by filling it with lots of fantasy or thoughts? What if you have to wait for the results of a biopsy? or for some form of medical test. Or I know people who've taken the bar exam and then have that period of waiting. Some people in this, in this economy hear that, know that they're, they're, um, that there's going to be layoffs in their company, but they have to wait to find out if they're on the list to stay or to go. These periods of waiting, that limbo, that not knowing time can be a can be a, a place where the mind easily goes into anxiety and worry if we don't use it very consciously as an opportunity to practice kanti, to take it as a practice. What do we do in those waiting moments? Can we wait with grace or do we torture ourselves with worry and fear? There's a common kind of um, phrase that just simply says, worry is not preparation. When I lived in India, waiting was a part of the day. Things just didn't happen fast. And we would get water during a few hours of the day, and it was off the other hours, and we would just wait to do our dishes until the water came on. There were certain hours where there was electricity, and there were certain hours where there was not electricity. And so we would just wait if we needed to do anything that involved electricity. Um, whenever I would travel in India, I would go to the train station. I never expected the train to necessarily come immediately or after one hour. The first time I did this, it was pretty hard because I did expect the train to come. I even got there early. But I've been on Indian train platforms for 16, 18 hours, just waiting for the train to come. To what extent are we willing to be present 
in conditions of limbo? Or do we wrap our sense of identity only around the clear, precise demarcations of beginnings and endings, of productivity and accomplishment? How packed is your own schedule in life? Is it sane? Or does it really feel like it's just too demanding? What's the hurry? We're all plodding along toward our death. And I don't think any of us are really in a hurry for death. And it doesn't so much matter how many emails we send and how many telephone calls we make and how many communications we have. Perhaps what's more important is the quality of our presence. And that quality we can develop not just through accomplishment, but also in those quiet moments. Have you ever sat down to meditation and realized that you were trying to get in more breaths? Now, this may sound ridiculous, but one of the little practices that we do to strengthen concentration sometimes is to just count the breaths. And some people, as soon as they're given the project to count the breaths, want to count more breaths because they think it's somehow better. And so they start to breathe quicker and count faster and get more breaths in. Now, people don't think it through, but it oft, it happens so frequently. I think this is one of the things that we can notice. Whether we're really ready and willing to just, when we breathe in and we breathe out, to wait for the next breath to come in and notice it as it comes in. Or do we try to rush it? Authentic presence is not in a hurry. There's nothing to get and there's nothing to get away from. We have to have patience with pain, with pleasure, and with neutral feelings so that we can live our lives free of desire and aversion. Are we willing to be present with our lives without demanding it be, to be other than it is? There's a lot we can learn about patience and trust and the rhythm of life by watching nature. There are a lot of insects and spores and bacteria that lie dormant for years and years until the conditions come together for them to ripen and mature and grow. There are many animals that hibernate in the winter. Can you imagine sleeping for a winter? I like to watch the um, some of the nature channels on television sometimes. And I was watching a program about um, frogs and um, how they would burrow under the ground in the desert and wait for the next rain which could be months and months and months, and then emerge when it rained. There was also a program about some snakes that were on an island off the coast of Australia. 
And these particular snakes somehow were on this island, and it um, was a very barren island. There what really was there was no there were no other mammals, there were no other animals. There was just these snakes. But one kind of bird would come each year, each year, and nest on the island. That was their food. So for three weeks out of each year, food was available. And they would eat approximately, one snake would eat about eight baby chicks. And that, and then their next meal would come a year later. Can you imagine waiting a whole year for your next meal? Okay, we would all die long before that. But the, but to, it's just nature is quite amazing. (laughs) It's quite interesting. Somehow I don't think that they spend, who knows what a snake thinks, but I, I just don't imagine that they sit around thinking about their next meal for an entire year. But who knows what a snake thinks. We practice a lot of patience in our meditation practice. And it's very important that we have this patience. Otherwise, we might get, get, give up because we don't see rapid progress. And I guarantee you that no matter how fast your progress is, it will always be slower than you wish. When we look back after five years, after 10 years, after 20 years, after 30 years, we'll realize in these large gaps or large periods of reflection, that what once caused us tremendous anguish is simply not a problem anymore. There is growth in our practice, but often we can't measure it and we can't mark it. We need resolve and forbearance to sustain our commitments. If we make a commitment to practice meditation each day, we need to actually do it. If we decide we want to sit a retreat each year, we need to sign up for a retreat each year. If we um, practice walking meditation, we need to actually do the walking meditation and not just stroll around turning it into an errand to the store or going for a hike. Can we just drop in to our practice and value that time simply with walking meditation, walk back and forth, mindful and present, patiently devoting ourselves to exploring the moment exactly as it is, even if it is not exciting or spectacular. Sometimes the expectations that we have for the rapidness of insight or the um, dramatic um, growth that could happen in a spiritual life is just a little unrealistic. It's not to say that dramatic moments don't happen. They actually do. It's just that usually not when we predict them. Being in a hurry or demanding experience often keeps the mind attending only to the grosser, coarser things, the things that we conceive of 
If we're in a hurry, we may not even notice the subtler aspects of life. If we're demanding in our practice, we may hope for bliss, for fireworks, for rapture, for dramatic insights, but but not take the time to really honor and respect respect the stillness, the tranquility, the equanimity that is an undercurrent and supporting our development. If we privilege the dramatic, we might overlook the depth and the quietness that is so tremendously valuable. Kanti, patience, is often developed when we confront an obstacle. Do you welcome the obstacles in your practice and in your life and learn to endure them? The Buddha said that some difficulties are best dealt with by enduring. He said, and what taints should be abandoned by enduring Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, and contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun, and creeping things. He endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not endure such things, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who endures them. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by enduring. Patience is a specific training in the Buddhist tradition. Monastics undertake many practices to cultivate patience and endurance. And I would encourage us as lay people to periodically take on some of the practices that monastics do. We can do almost all of the practices that monastics do. We just don't necessarily do them um, all at once, or we'd be a monastic. But we might take a period of a day or a week or a month or a year and make a vow to practice some different aspects to cultivate patience. The Dutanga practices are called the shaking off practices. And they're not austerity practices. They're the practices where we commit to one meal a day or a limit on our clothing or um, um, uh, just having... Um, eating what can fit in one bowl or in a one um, um, or sleeping on the ground on the hard floor. That's another often done uh, practice or walking barefoot. They're not intended as practices to cause suffering. I mean, you're not sleeping on a bed of nails. But they are intended to ask ourselves to practice patience and endurance. True compassion arises when we are able to endure difficulties, to have the stability and the strength to stay steady in the face of difficulties. Just as a flower blossoms in its own time when we water it and it receives the warmth from the sun, our own practice will blossom in its own time 
as compassion and wisdom mature. We don't rip the flowers open on a, of a bud, and we just wait, we watch, we enjoy the unfolding of the flower. And we also need that presence to watch and observe the unfolding of our own realization, our own patience, our wisdom, and our compassion. Let's have a few quiet minutes, and then we'll um, see if there's some questions. Are there any comments, discussion, questions? What would the barefoot meditation um, or practice uh, consist of? Um, well, we used to do this in the monasteries in Thailand, um, and it's a very optional practice. It's not something that's required e- either for monastics or lay people. But people would periodically decide to intensify their their uh, practice because even living in a monastery gets comfortable and easy after a while. We adjust to things. And so to intensify it, we would just make a commitment to not wear shoes. So wherever we went, we would just go barefoot. And so it meant that there were rocks and pokey things and thorns. And um, the first the first week I was doing it, I was like, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> but it toughens up after a while, and the heart the heart gets a little stronger, and um, and you just um, um, it's an interest. It's just interesting. It's it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. It's an it's an easy practice to do to. Um, to just um, um, recognize how you deal with minor pain. I saw how pathetic my mind was. It was like like just walking, like the feet hurt. Well, okay, so how can I practice with that? So, so we would do that after the, after the monastic life was getting very comfortable and very easy. Like the first week I slept on the ground. That was really hard. I had to be patient with the pain and, and, um, be equanimous with that. But it got easy. It got comfortable. And so another year I decided to, to, to do the shoe thing and to take off the shoes. So that's all. And you can do things in your own life that just not make cause great suffering in your life, but just ask you to not always live with getting every comfort that we want. Sometimes we live a very comfortable existence. So would there be a way of um, doing this and still go to stores or... Um... <laughs> oh, well, I always did it when I was in a monastery. In a monastery, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. Um, <laughs> I, I don't recommend it in, in, in uh, you know, like you might do it at home, which would, or you might do it, you might do it when you're on, yeah. At a I park would, or something. At a, yeah, I'm not sure if... Our culture is a little different because we have so many things that get thrown away. I mean, I was living in a jungle, so it, there were dangers of snakes and um, things you could trip on and roots and rocks and thorns, but there wasn't broken glass on the ground. So I wouldn't recommend it in the, the city. But the idea is is that you pick something that just is is going to cause a little bit of discomfort but is not going to injure your health or something like that. Um, so it could just be um, even something very simple is sometimes the very first 
moment that we feel hot, we go flip on the air conditioning. And then we get cold, and we turn on the heater, and we put on a coat. Well, maybe we can... Uh, I'm not suggesting we either freeze nor never use air conditioning, but maybe we can expand our range of comfort a little bit and not live in such a narrow window. Uh, so we, you might practice with the air conditioning and the, the heater a little bit. You might practice with something else. So you take the spirit of the monastic practice and then um, and um, and explore. Any other questions, discussion? I'm curious as well how you guys please, how you practice with patients in your own life. You might have some suggestions. Yeah, if I can think of how to phrase this. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts when, boy, thoughts, uh, whether they be fantasies or thoughts of pain over like a missed opportunity or something like that are running through our minds. Um, it seems we have a choice to either perhaps chase those thoughts away and focus on the present, return to our breath, or to allow, allow the thoughts to be there, to be patient with them and wait it out to observe. Well, you know, this um, this list of things where the Buddha said to endure, they yeah. were pretty much all present moment things. He didn't, in this, he didn't, he didn't include um, desire and aversion and thoughts of the past. Um, those are actually in the same sutta, but they're listed under things to abandon. To abandon, rather yeah. than to be patient with, to see what unfolds, because yeah. you were referring to the yeah, unfolding you know, there a little bit. Yeah, unfolds what's in, in unfolds in our lives, but I don't think we need to entertain um, uh, uh, what are classified in a way as defilements or as hindrances. But we have to be patient with ourselves that this is a deeply conditioned pattern that has arisen. So we don't judge ourselves because it's arisen. We're patient with ourselves, but we also don't do anything that would perpetuate that pattern in the future. So we would cut off the energy for it. We would let it go completely, set it aside, but still be patient with ourselves, not add on the demand and judgment that we should be different than we are. Those um, those experiences arose because of our conditioning. And But if we perpetuate that conditioning in the next moment, um, then we'll still have those hindrances in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. We have a lot of choice as to what we condition in the future, but we have no choice as to what conditioning we're experiencing right now. So we have to be patient to endure the present moment experience as it arises, but then respond wisely to it. And sometimes the wise response is to let it go quickly, to cut it off, to abandon it. So, like with hindrances, with um, uh, anger, with 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 uh, uh, just stuff that you know is going to take you down a road you don't need to go. You know, be compassionate towards yourself, but not towards that um, that defilement. Kilesa is the is the Pali term for defilement. Defilement's kind of a kind of an odd word in English, but kilesa really describes what it is. We we sense the mind as it's um, defiled, as it's. Um, Okay, so rather than um, investigating the source of the pain, instead developing the muscle of casting off or letting go of those things. Yeah, you have to know you have to know a hindrance as a hindrance. 
A certain amount of investigation has to happen, but how many times do you have to investigate it? You know, a restless mind, a worrying, I mean, you worry, okay, you investigate it a few times, but after a while, you'll look and you'll go, I know that one. And it won't take you very many investigations before you start to realize, I know that one. And as soon as you know that one, just let it go. You know, just let it go. Don't keep reinvestigating because reinvestigating the same stuff you already know is not living by the wisdom that you already know. Okay, thank you. This is a really interesting topic, and it, it fits very well with what I've been working on this past week, which is patience. But in relationship to patience and the role of being generous in order to overcome your impatience, Mm -hmm. being generous with the person you're interacting with, for example, and and realizing that talking over them is a kind of impatience. And it's an impatience that's uh, clinging to yourself as being the center of the conversation and not letting the other person have their chance to finish. Being patient and being generous with somebody to to let them miss you know a, a deadline or a yeah. a, a goal yeah. or an agreed upon activity because maybe their car broke down or yeah. Yeah. maybe they have a sick child at home yeah you no that's a lovely know. lovely addition to the practice is to combine the generosity with the patience it yeah. really for me it makes a big difference to Think of it and try to say, how can I be generous here and let myself be patient and be patient with whoever or whatever the situation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Thank you. I want to thank you all very much for coming tonight. Lovely to see you and have a safe drive home.